Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. In honor of today's candy crawl, uh, I need a volunteer who would say they are just like a huge candy corn person. Will you raise your hand? Oh, you guys are hesitant. You know it's coming. I'm not going to pick Danielle. I'll pick one of the students. Come up here. Tigger? Is that what you're dressed as right now? All right. So come up, up, up on stage. All right. So on behalf of all non-candy corn people, I have a bag of candy corn for you. This is years of me just trashing candy corn people. But before you take this, I have another offer for you. Okay. Okay. You can choose candy corn or a bag of Reese's pumpkins, which are the greatest Halloween candy of all time. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose candy corn? All right. Take it. There you go. Hey. Go ahead. Um, feel free to share that with people. Around. Anybody want Reese's? No, you didn't raise your hand for candy corn. <laughs> Noah, you got this. All right, students for the win. <laughs> uh, feel free to share around you. Uh, please don't eat it all. I'm not your parent. Your parents are somewhere in here. But um, So today we're in week two of our sermon series called Marked. And this series is about how the Bible and scripture can mark us. That when we read the Bible, we'll come across these verses that just sit in our souls. These verses that change our lives, they impact who we are. And to create this sermon series, we took all the verses that were shared on our Your Story Matters podcast that's been going on over the past year, and we broke them up into five different categories. Along with that, we put together a Bible plan called the Mark Bible Reading Plan, where you can read all of the verses that were shared on the podcast. Now, just as a reminder, if you're interested in listening to the podcast, if you haven't picked it up yet, or if you want to know where the Bible plan is, you just open up that Church Center app, you scroll to the bottom, you'll see Your Story Matters, and it'll all be there. And there's one major goal for this series, and it's that we read the Bible. A super simple goal for every person here. We want every single one of you to take a step forward when it comes to reading the Bible, whether you follow Jesus or not. And so for some of you, the challenge is if you aren't reading the Bible to pick it up during this series, if you're reading the Bible irregularly to try to find that habit and that rhythm, and if you're reading the Bible every single day, the challenge is to read it more, or maybe try to elevate that discipline a little bit by reading it while taking notes or reading it with other people so you can have a discussion with them. Now, by a round of applause, um, how many of you went seven for seven last week reading the Bible? Okay, it's good. <laughs> you guys are like very quiet about it. You don't want to rub it in everybody's face. It's okay. Um, all right, by a round of applause, how many of you took a step forward in your Bible reading though? Right, it got a little bit better this week. So no matter what this last week felt like, get at it, right? If you had a bad week and you had all the intention in the world to read your Bible differently this week and take a next step and you didn't, just get at it, right? Go back and read all of last week, read all of this week, pick it up, start creating those habits because studies show that reading the Bible just a few times a week will lead to better mental health, a better marriage, a better view of self, better spiritual disciplines, better friendships, better self-control, and a ton more. 
Now, before we get into today's theme, I want to share a few more stats about the Bible and Bible reading with you all. From 2011 to 2021, nearly 50% of American adults reported reading the Bible at least three times a year every single year on that 10-year span. And we talked about this last week. People who read their Bible just four times a year say that it significantly transforms their lives. So while three times a year like, isn't like, really great, it's not a great bar to set, we know that people who read their Bible just three, four, five times a year see a positive impact in their lives because of how powerful Scripture is. Here's the problem, though. In 2022, the number of people who read their Bible three times or more a year declined to 39%. Right, drop from 50% to 39%. That means while divorces are on the rise, suicides are on the rise, loneliness is on the rise, addictions are on the rise, and mental and emotional well-being are cratering, about 26 million people stopped reading their Bible. And so I'm just going to say this as black and white as I can. I do not believe that these things are coincidental. I do not. I believe that if people read their Bible regularly, if people are daily immersed in God's word and they put what they read into action in their lives, divorces, suicides, addiction, loneliness would all go down and we would have better mental and emotional health. I absolutely believe that. And science and psychology, every single report that comes out on it supports that as well. And so we have to read the Bible. And I know that people often question the validity of the Bible. In fact, I know that many of you struggle with this and I get that. But, but here's what I would say about that. Whether you trust scripture or not, reading and applying what the Bible teaches will still have a positive impact on your life. It will. None of the studies that we talked about last week had the caveat that the positive impact of reading the Bible is only for people who trusted that the Bible was the inspired word of God. Those studies were simply about whether or not people read the Bible. Now, with all that being said, though, here are two big reasons that I personally trust what I'm reading when I read scripture. The first one comes from Dr. Nelson Gluick. Gluick was a highly respected archaeologist who used his, the historical accuracy of the Bible to discover over 1,500 ancient sites in his 40-year career. And regarding the Bible and archaeology, he stated this. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever refuted a biblical reference. This is an expert in the field. And he used scripture to determine where things were, and he's found over 1,500 sites. He continued by saying, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions have often led to amazing discoveries. And I think this is important. No archaeological discovery has ever refuted a biblical reference. Here's another reason I have confidence in what is written in the Bible. I actually just came across this earlier this year, but it blew me away. Uh, have any of you seen this picture before? This made its rounds on social media this year. It's actually been out for a few years. This is a picture of all of the cross-references in the Bible, right? These conceptual links between verses, connecting locations, people, and phrases. In the Bible, there are over 63,000 cross-references and over 340,000 total connections. Now, if you look at this graph, the bar graph that runs on the bottom are all the chapters in the Bible, starting with Genesis 1, all the way on your left. And the books alternate in color between these two different shades of gray. The first book of the Old Testament and the New Testament are in white. The length of each bar at the bottom denotes the number of verses in each chapter. And so the longest bar that you see is Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. 
Right? How amazing is this image? This is scripture laid out in cross-references only. And so oftentimes people get caught up on the fact that the Bible was written by imperfect people or they get caught up on when it was written or when they found the manuscripts of the Bible. But if this whole thing is made up, if this is just some elaborate ploy or some crazy coincidence where 40 people over thousands of years somehow managed to write this book, how do you explain things like this? Right? You and your wife, you and your friend can experience the same thing and tell completely different stories. And we're talking, these are the writers that were inspired by God. And so it's not like they were sitting together in homeroom, copying each other's homework before they head to math class. Right? This is spread out over thousands of years. And I believe the only way that something like this can be explained is that scripture is fully and completely inspired by God. And I think this image is one of the reasons that you can trust that scripture is God-breathed. Now, I would encourage you, if you want to learn more, there's, it's actually interactive. You can go on a website, just Google cross-references the Bible later, and you can click on all the links, and it'll show you all those connections. All right, so last week, we learned that Scripture teaches us a better way to live. Here's the big idea for today. Scripture teaches us that we are loved by God. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. It doesn't matter who you are and what you have done. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus or not. You are loved by God. And John, who wrote this, calls this a real love. It's not a fake love. A few years ago, I preached on a similar topic about how God loves us. And after church, someone came up to me and they said, God loves you is a bit of like a Sunday school lesson, like it's for kids, right? And I thought for a second about what the person said, and I just responded, not really. Because here's what I know is true about people in this church. I know that some of you grew up in the church and you have never been told that God loves you because you grew up in a church where you felt like you needed to earn love. And if you didn't stand up and sit down and hail Mary and be perfect with everything that you were doing, you didn't feel like you could earn that affection from him. I know that some of you grew up in a home where you didn't feel loved, at least not a real love. I know that some of you have been in marriages and relationships where you heard the words, I do not love you. And because of that, the voice in the back of your head says you are unworthy of love, that God doesn't love you, that you are unlovable. And it's just not true. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. And I feel like I could keep repeating this over and over and over again because I know that some of you just don't believe me. You are loved. You are lovable. You are worthy of love. The God of the universe, the God who created everything in this world, loves you immensely. Like one of the songs we just sang, God's love is like sand on a thousand shores. He gives and he gives and still there's more. You are loved. And listen, I understand that the word love has kind of lost its oomph. A few months ago, uh, I bumped into someone at a coffee shop that I hadn't seen for a few years and kind of passively knew them. And he said, we should grab coffee sometime. And I said, yeah, I would love that. I would not love that. <laughs> Man, I'm not even sure I would like that. But we've kind of devalued this word love. Like, think about it. I use the same word to describe how I feel about my wife and how much I appreciate chips and queso, okay? I love both. It's just not equally. And so in order for us to understand the value of God's love, what God's love actually looks like, what real love 
is, what we have to do is we have to keep reading scripture and see how scripture describes this love. And so if you're taking notes, here's one of the characteristics of God's love. Uh, God's love for us is unconditional. You cannot lose it. To be honest, you can't even decline it, even if you don't want it. You cannot be too sinful, broken, jacked up to be loved by God. Romans 8, Paul writes this. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Now, how many of you asked that question before? Right, maybe it's in your head. Maybe it's to other people. I know I have. When I'm sitting in that dark place of my shame after I snap at my girls or I snap at my wife because my anger gets the best of me, when I have the opportunity to be patient and I fail, when I screw up, I cannot help but think that God loves me a little less. Because right now, there are 7.8 billion people in this world, so why would God love me if there are better people to love? Right? How many of you have felt that way before? Or, or how about this? It continues, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Right? When life just flat out sucks, do you ever think it's because God doesn't love you? that your pain is because God doesn't love you, that the miscarriage, the divorce, the abuse, the addiction are all because God doesn't actually truly love you, as if God's love is conditional. And so we ask that question, can anything separate us from God's love? Are there conditions for God's love? Is God's love something that we can earn or something that he takes away? And this is what Paul says in verse 37. No. No. Despite all of these things, despite everything you are going through, despite all the good and the bad, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Right? Despite the trouble and the pain and the brokenness, we have overwhelming victory through Jesus because he loves us. And then Paul writes this in verse 38. He says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing. And he goes on to explain. He says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Right? Nothing physical, nothing in this world, but on top of that, nothing spiritual. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And then in verse 39, Paul doubles down on this. It's like he knew that thousands of years later, people would still struggle with this. And he says this, he says, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so let's make this personal. If you had the opportunity to stand in front of Jesus right now, and if you were to ask him, Jesus, is it possible that the, that the sins and mistakes I've made in my life against my family, against my marriage, against my kids, against my friends, against that boyfriend or girlfriend, against my own body, and ultimately against you. Is it possible for you to still love me? Yes. But don't I have to fix my marriage? Don't I have to stop looking at porn? Don't I have to give away my money? Don't I have to change the way I'm living? Don't I have to, don't I have to, don't I have to? Don't I have to earn your love? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But here's the thing, and this is really important. God loves us, but that doesn't mean he loves everything we do. Because unconditional love does not mean unconditional acceptance. Let me say that again. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional acceptance. If you are in a relationship with someone where they unconditionally accept everything that you do, you are in a toxic relationship. Every good and healthy relationship has boundaries. Every good and healthy relationship has accountability. Every good and healthy relationship is equally sacrificial. 
And if you are in a relationship where you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, that is toxic. You see, God doesn't love when I'm impatient with my kids, but he still loves me. God doesn't love when I'm a jerk to my wife, but he still loves me. God doesn't love when I choose my own way over his, but he still loves me. God doesn't love when I sin. When I choose to walk out of alignment with him, God doesn't love that, but he does love me. And the decisions we make have natural consequences. And if we continue to choose our own way over God's, we will feel the impact of those decisions. It will destroy our friendships just like it did the last one. It will destroy our family just like it's already doing. It will destroy our mental health in just the same way it's being destroyed currently. So God clearly doesn't want us to disobey or disregard his teaching. But here's the answer to Don't I have to stop doing whatever to be loved by God? The answer is no. You don't actually have to change anything about yourself to be loved by God. The condition of God loving you is not something that you have to change. It's not that you have to check all these boxes or agree to do something different anymore. You're not making a deal with God for his love. There is no catch. There is no fine print. You are loved. And I know uh, every time I talk about this topic, there are always people that get offended by this message, and that's fine. But do you know who are the most offended by a sermon where the pastor says you don't have to be changed to be loved by God? Christians. It's always Christians. More specifically, it's Christian people who are currently not screwing up their lives or Christian people who are not currently in the middle of relapse or who are currently not sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend who are currently not holding on to unforgiveness. Those are the type of people that hate this sermon because they think I'm letting everybody off the hook too easily. And here's the argument they're having with me in their head right now. He or she is addicted to alcohol, drugs, porn, food, exercise. They're selfish and only think of themselves. They gossip, they lie, they cheat. They have done horrible, bad, shameful things to me or to other people. Don't they need to at least try to be a good person to be loved by God? No. Don't they need to at least try to change some things in their life in order for God to start loving them? Absolutely not. We can just as easily replace they with I because it's the same thing. I am addicted. I have anger issues. I have doubts. I have done horrible, bad, shameful things to myself and to other people. Don't I need to at least try to be a good person to be loved by God? Don't I need to at least try to change some things in my life in order for God to start loving me? No, absolutely not. Because like Paul says in Romans 8, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. God's love is unconditional. It always has been and always will be. Here's another way that the Bible describes God's love. God shows his love through his actions. It's not a theoretical love. I would argue it's not even really a feeling that he has. It's action that he brings out into our lives. Check this out. John 3.16 says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the most famous verse in the Bible. It's the most searched verse on the internet with 2.1 million searches monthly. It's the most tagged and posted verse on social media. And the reason is because it so perfectly sums up this whole Christianity thing. God loves us so much that he sent his son to earth who would give up his own life as a sacrifice so that we could spend eternity in heaven. Right? This is what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. God sent his son to save the world, to save you and to save me. 
But let's read that again. Let's actually read the verse that comes after that, that often gets skipped. John 3, 16 and 17 says this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. God loved, so he gave, he sent, and he saved. God didn't just say, oh my gosh, I love them so much, and that's it. He just didn't think, oh, they're the light of my world, and I love them, and that's it. God showed it. God proved it. And God did that by giving up his son, by sending his son, and by saving the world. God shows his love through action. In Romans 5, Paul wrote this. He said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for that person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God showed, God sent. Jesus came, Jesus died. It's a tangible love. It's seen and felt and experienced. Think about it like this. It's one thing for me to say that I love my spouse, but it's another thing for me to show her that I love her, right? And so I show Ray that I love her by spending quality time with her, by making her a priority, by scheduling monthly date nights, by being patient and trying not to keep a record of wrongs, by loving her the way that Christ loved the church, which means laying down my life for her. Now, it's one thing for me to say I love my children, but it's another thing for me to show that I love them. I show them by being present in their lives, by making them a priority, by showing up, by spending intentional time with them, by leading and teaching them, by making sure I get to give them a hug every single night before bed. It's one thing to say, I love this church, but it's another to show that I love this church by showing up, by serving, by being generous, by inviting, by being a part of what God is doing here. It's one thing to say that I love my neighbors, but it's another thing to show that I love my neighbors by knowing their stories, by knowing their names, by lending them a hand when they need help, by giving out good regular-sized candy bars on Halloween. (laughs) Right? Because if you give out candy corn and Laffy Taffy, you don't love them, okay? Listen, I say this every year. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to be giving out the biggest and the most and the best candy at Halloween because you love your neighbors so much, okay? Don't give Jesus a bad name by giving out Smarties, okay? (laughs) Don't do that. Some of you got to go to Target after this. That's fine. (laughs) Right? God shows his love through action. And that means you never have to wonder if he loves you because you see it. Forgiveness is proof of God's love. Grace is proof of God's love. Wisdom is proof of God's love. Community is proof of God's love. Redemption is proof of God's love. And almost every single time you read in the Bible a verse that talks about God's love for us, there is an action that proves it. The thing, though, is that it is always the same action. Check this out. We read today, God loved So he sent his son so that we could have eternal life. God loved, so he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God loved, so he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loved, so he sent his son to save the world through him. God loved by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love is about our salvation. It is about our forgiveness. It is about his desire for us to spend eternity in heaven with him. 
Right now, uh, every time we say, I love you, to our five-year-old Harper, she responds by saying, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So they're like, I love you, Harper. Have a good day. Me too. And then she goes on her way. And I'm not going to lie. I don't know if she's telling us that she also loves us or if she also loves herself. (laughs) But I think we do the same thing when it comes to God. We desire to be loved by God. We're grateful to be loved by God. And God says, I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you so that you could be saved, so that you could be with me forever. And we respond by saying, me too. And we go on our way. But the point of God's love isn't me too. It's accepting that loved so that we can be saved. And so for some of you, it's time to start choosing to live every day in God's love because there is nothing greater And when you are ready to take that next step or move into that place, the way we do it here, the way we celebrate that here, is baptism. Baptism is the physical action that represents what is going on in the faith in our hearts. Baptism is the action in the Bible tied to accepting that love, that grace, and that goodness. When we baptize people at Collective, what they'll do is they'll repeat, repeat, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And what they're saying is that Jesus is going to take care of me. He is my leader and forgiver. He's my grace and my truth. And I know that some of you are struggling with belief and you aren't really sure you want to believe or if you do believe. But if you understand that you have a love that is unconditional and real, a love that gives you peace and purpose, and you cannot do anything to make that love go away, if you have that love, the question is, what else do you need? Because this is what so many of you have been looking for your entire life. It's someone who loves you no matter what. And that is God. That is who God is. And when you are ready to receive that love or live in that love or kind of go forward in life through that place, it is time to get baptized. And so God always has and always will love you. That is a promise. You are loved by God. And once you believe that God loves you unconditionally, what ends up happening naturally is you start to trust him. And when you start to trust him, then he begins to work on your soul. And you'll want him to do that because you know it's coming from a place of real love where you understand that God wants what's best for you and where you understand that when you fall short, which we always will, that God will still love us unconditionally. But that starts with not just understanding that love, but accepting the truth that God loves you unconditionally. Pastor Tim Keller once said, we are all more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved in Christ than we ever dared hope. And that word wicked, I think, can be traded out for a number of other words. We can say we're more broken than we ever dared believe. We can say we're more lost than we ever dared believe. We're more sinful than we ever dared believe. We are more loved than we ever dared hope. You are loved. That is a promise. And you don't have to earn that love. It is always there. It's always available. It's always yours for the taking. And it is a promise that you can hold on to. I am loved. You are loved. We are loved. Let's pray. God, um, as we read through the Bible, uh, God, as we read through um, the verses that were shared by people in this church, it's overwhelming how many People chose verses that talk about your love for them. And I think, God, it's because we, we want that and we long for that. We, we are created to be loved. 
And we long to experience that unconditional love in our lives. And, and so oftentimes, God, we search for it in the wrong places. God, we try to find it from other people. Um, to be honest, we try to find it from materials. Sometimes we try to drum up that love for ourselves, and it always falls short of the way that you love us. Um, and so God, as, as, we, uh, as we go out this week, as we um, pick up the Bible plan this week, as we read these verses about just how much you love us, I pray that it actually truly sinks in. God, that doesn't matter what we've heard in our past, what we've experienced in our past, whether that's in our home or at church. God, whether that's through other people, God, that this week we really begin to understand that you love us unconditionally. God, even when we are at our worst, you love us. And God, that this love isn't just theoretical. It's not even the warm and fuzzies. It's action. God, you loved us so much and your desire to be connected to us was so strong that you sent your son to live a perfect life to die on a cross for us and so that when we put our faith in him, we can be with you forever. And God, we're thankful for that love. God, we're thankful for real love, not fake love, not halfway love, but the unconditional love that you show us. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.